We're not quite going to finish the chapter today. We're going to work a little more than halfway through the remaining verses in this chapter. We're going to start in verse 9 and work our way down through verse 16. Let's read together. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let's pray together. Father, we pause in our morning to worship you in prayer. To call to mind together who you are. Your holiness. Your goodness. That you are exalted. You are high and lifted up. That you inhabit eternity. And we worship you. And we praise you that we get to worship you in Christ. That we have redemption in Him. That we who were far off have been brought near. That we who were in rebellion have been reconciled to You. So we thank You for Jesus and we praise You for Him and for this salvation that we have in Him. And as we turn to Your Word, we rejoice that You have communicated to us in Your Word about Yourself, about us, about this salvation and about what it means that we have been redeemed and how we live together in light of that. This morning I pray for your blessing on our time. Pray that you would speak to us from your word. That you would do your work in our hearts. Particularly in regard to a genuine love for one another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of a jazz musician who went to Moscow in the 1980s and was playing to this crowd of Russians uh, sitting in the audience and and he's he's uh, playing and and he's a great performer he's very well known and and uh, and he thought that the people in the crowd were going to be jazz fans that they knew his music that they loved his music and that they were going to enjoy it together and so throughout the whole performance he's uh, doing his thing on stage and he looks in the crowd and he just sees deadpan in the crowd from everybody very still hands on their knees sitting straight up no expression on their face and the whole time he's thinking, this is awful. <laughs> this is really flopping. Well, after the whole thing was over and he was uh, talking to some of the people who were in the audience, he said, I, I really thought you would enjoy it. I, I thought this was, you know, you were jazz fans and that you knew my music and that you would enjoy this. And, and he said, oh, we did. We loved it. We thought it was great. And he was very confused because he didn't see any outward expression of that joy. They were enjoying it inside, and they were smiling inside, and they were bobbing along inside. Well, that's because they were in Russia. And their behavior was explained by their background. Their behavior was explained by where they had come from. See, if you remember the uh, history of the Soviet Union, if you've read about it, or uh, if you remember it from your own, own lifetime, it was a dangerous place. It was a dangerous place to have ideas. It was a dangerous place to stand out for anything. And so uh, Russians tended to learn the skill of not letting any expression come to their face. They'd be walking down the street and, uh, and, and 
and uh, there would be no expression. Unless you saw a friend, and even that was very low-key, there wasn't a whole lot of smiling like we do, there wasn't a whole lot of loud talking or laughter or anything like that. And, uh, and, and girls, when they were trying to learn how to flirt with boys, they had to learn how to smile with their eyes only, and not with their face. They had to communicate flirtation somehow, mystically, that way, where they came from. It was dangerous. If you were one who was making a big scene, if you drew attention to yourself, you might draw the wrong kind of attention to yourself. And you might have the KGB knocking at your door. You might have the secret police trying to find you. You might have informants upon you. You might find that your apartment had been bugged because you were expressing strong opinions. You were expressing strong emotion. That we understand uh, Russian people and we understand some of their behavior and some of their mannerisms even because of where they came from because of their background. Well, I tell that story, and not just uh, to reminisce about what it was like to uh, walk down the street in Russia and, and have no expression on people's face, and, and particularly for my wife, who likes to smile and laugh. Uh, she stood out in Russia, and, and uh, because she expresses emotion, she's from a very different place. When we come to our passage today, in uh, Romans chapter 12, we have to remember how we got here. We have to remember where we came from. That when we see these descriptions of behavior, when you see these expectations of what it's to be like in, uh, in, in a Christian environment where Christians are together, we have to remember where we came from. We have to remember what all we've learned in Romans to this point. That yes, we are a family, but we are not a family genetically. We are not a family by birth. We are not a family because we are related to one another in any kind of natural sense that, that uh, we're very different in our congregation. We're from very different backgrounds. We, if you look around, we, we have all different sizes and shapes. We have, we have all different accents even, all different ages. We're a diverse group, relatively speaking. We come from many different places. But if you think about the fact that we are the redeemed. Well, that means that we have a few things in common. That means that we have in common where we came from. That is, that Paul spelled out our own sin, our own guilt before God, that the, the fact that we start this life in our natural state opposed to him, actually in rebellion against life and uh, against God. And many of us, for much of our lives, we have uh, gone through life in active rebellion, rejecting God. That's where, that's where many of us come from, and, and maybe we even lived decades in that. But because of our sin, because of our guilt before God, th- that means we have not only this guilt, but the punishment that comes with it is what we deserve. That's where we come from. We all have that in common. Maybe we were redeemed at four years old. Maybe we were redeemed at 40 years old, yet we came from that same place, that we were on the outside and had to be brought in, that we were in a place of being lost, and we had to be saved. So that's one thing we have in common. But secondly, the second thing we have in common is how we got here. How we got to be within God's family. We didn't just inherit it. We didn't just uh, uh, walk onto it, stumble onto it one day. We were, we were redeemed. We got here the same way. Paul says, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That we were justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That He saved us not because of works that we had done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. How how did Christians come to be in the family of God? Well, He saved us through faith in Jesus And what he had done in giving himself as an offering for sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Christian, this this place that we have in God's family is ours because of what God has done. Ours because of his grace, his saving work. We get to be at peace with our Heavenly Father instead of being at enmity with the king, rebelling, rebelling against him, and that is ours because of the gracious work of God on our behalf. That's where we came from. 
That's our background, that God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's our background. That explains our behavior. That explains the behavioral expectations upon us. That explains why the certain look on our face as it were. Now that we've been brought into this family, coming from that background affects how we behave affects how we treat one another and the love that we ought to have for one another. We looked last week at the gifting from the paragraph before in Romans chapter 12 where he talked about how God had given us differing gifts to minister to one another in differing ways, that we are to function accordingly, that we're to uh, use our gifts and exercise to strengthen the body, to bless one another. And he recognizes that the gifting that God has given us is not just in that context. It's not just a spiritual gifting uh, out there, but it's a relationship with one another as well. That part of the gifting he's given us is the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we have our first point here in verse 9 about genuine Love, He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. First of all, our love is to be without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Talk is cheap. It's easy for us to make bold declarations of our love for one another. And it's easy for that to mean nothing. Likewise, it's, it's possible for us to put on masks and to pretend for one another, to pretend that we like one another, to pretend that we love one another. We can, we can put on masks. But what he's saying is the kind of love we are to have for one another is to be a love without hypocrisy. We did a, a word study on this word love in our Sunday school class this morning, and we looked at all different usages of the word, and, and we came to the conclusion that in this passage, when he says, let love be genuine, he's talking about a love that is motivated from deep within, that has emotional components, it has components of action toward one another, but it's motivated from deep within by the grace of God, that we have been redeemed And thus we have a certain affection for others who have been redeemed like us. And that affection, that emotion that we have, wells up from deep within and results in action, behavior toward one another that demonstrates it. And there's a continuity between the words that we say, the deeds that we do, and that deep inner motivation that we have within us. It's a genuine love. It's sincere It's without dissimulation, the King James would say. It's not just pretense. It's not just outward display. Nor is it simply emotion. It's a rooted affection that results in behavior toward one another. And that behavior is going to be spelled out in the remaining verses. So first, our love is to be without hypocrisy. And secondly, that love hates evil. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Genuine Christian love stands against evil. Abhors, resists, hates, stands against evil. It will not allow itself to be drawn into what God hates. As Christians, we're to hate evil in all its forms. Greed and deception and murder and adultery and falsehood of any kind. And on and on and on. We're to to hate those things, to stand against them. And that makes sense because of where we came from. That we have been redeemed by God in Christ. Our Father hates these things. And so we, as His children, hate these things as well. But there's, there's more to it than just... Me abhorring what is evil. I think it's connected strongly with this idea of love that when I have a genuine love for you, 
That means that I don't want evil for you either. I don't want evil to happen to you, and I don't want you to participate in evil. That my genuine Christian love will mean that I will hate evil on your behalf as well. So sometimes that might involve me stepping in to to protect you from evil. Sometimes that might involve us stepping in to help another person who's committing evil. Love says that we will do that. Genuine love hates evil in all of its forms and particularly within those that we love, happening to those we love. We don't want evil for them. We, we hate evil. Instead, a genuine Christian love clings to good. He says, hold fast to what is good. Where does our love come from? Does it just come from the fact that I'm a good person and therefore I have love for you? Or does it come from the fact that you're a good person and therefore I have love for you? No, the love that we have for one another comes from the fact that Christ loved us first, gave himself for us, and redeemed us. And now we are called the fellowship of the redeemed. And so we have a love for one another that's rooted in the fact that I needed redemption, you needed redemption, and we've been redeemed. So now we, we love each other as siblings in Christ, as those who have received that same redemption that we have received. We love one another, and that reflects itself in our clinging to good for one another. That not only do I not want evil for you, I want what is good for you. That's an expression of love. I want you to do good, and I want good things to happen to you. That's my desire for you. That's an expression of love. And when we love one another with a genuine Christian love, that's what's going on. We want good for that person. We cling to good for the person we are loving. A child who is being disciplined by godly, loving, wise parents may not receive that discipline at the time as being loving. But we who have parented children or we who have observed wise parents and the results of wise parenting in their children, we know that that is loving. The child doesn't think so at the time. The child will realize it at some point. That was a loving thing to do. Likewise, in our treatment of one another, sometimes, sometimes, what a Christian lovingly does towards another Christian is not received as love. It can be received as hostility. It can be received as getting into my business. That's none of your business. Stay out of that. That's me. That's mine. But sometimes our Christian love for, for one another encourages us, pushes us towards being involved, even in ways that will not be received at the time as being loving. And yet, it is the loving thing to do because we cling to good, because we want good for the person that we are loving. Genuine Christian love clings to what is good. And secondly, genuine Christian love carries with it certain Christian attitudes. First of all, attitudes toward one another. Listen to verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You see, first of all, brotherly affection is actually an affection. It's emotion. It's a, it's a sense of being siblings together. It's a love for the other person that has an emotional component to it. And we are to love one another with that, not ignoring that, not denying that, not in the absence of that. We generally, genuinely have an affection for one another. And as we grow in Christ, as we particularly go through difficult things, we grow in that affection for one another. The more time we spend together, the more we grow in Christ together, the more we realize, I can't believe that person still loves me. I, I, I'm, I'm no catch. I'm no gem. And yet this person loves me because of Christ. And I love that person more and more because of Christ. We have a genuine, brotherly affection for one another. And we are to outdo one another in showing honor. 
So imagine this game, all right? So this is going to be this is going to be what you're going to do. It's going to be a mental exercise for what you're going to do, a competition uh, among yourselves for the remainder of our week. You need to do your best to win it, and here are the rules. You're to show more genuine honor to others than they show to you. That's your goal, right? That's how you're going to win this game, is you are going to honor other people more than they are able to honor you. That's your competition, right? That's how we're going to treat one another. Can you imagine the atmosphere that would create? If the goal of the competition was to outdo one another in showing honor. Oh, you showed me honor, man. Right? And we want to show more. Genuine honor, not making it up, not pretending, but actually honoring that person. James comes at the, the same idea in the, from the other direction in James chapter 4. Looking at the same concept, he comes at it the other way and he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight in quarrel. James is saying, why is there conflict among you? It's because you're always trying to get. You're always trying to grab. You're always trying to, to demand to get that thing you desire and you can't have, so you commit murder. You want to get, want to get, want to get. Rather than trying to get from one another, to get love or recognition or, or status or acceptance or superiority, rather than trying to get from one another, why not spend our time giving honor? You've been given an honor that is without limit and it cannot be taken away. You've been given the honor of being placed into God's family in Christ. Why not freely give of that honor? I guarantee you, you will not run out. Give honor to one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Well, those are the attitudes that uh, we are to have toward one another. What about, what about the attitudes toward the Lord? Look at verses 11 and 12. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. It turns out our Christian walk doesn't only take us to mountaintop experiences. We like those. We rejoice in those. We remember those. But that path doesn't always take us there. In a lot of ways in the Christian life, one day is pretty much like the next day. We don't tend to grow in leaps and bounds. We don't tend to have overwhelming joys or overwhelming sorrows. Those happen. But we tend to walk day by day, day by day, walking with Christ. We, we talk about the ordinary means of grace. We talk about baptism. We talk about the Lord's Supper. We talk about the Word of God. Well, that sounds pretty much like going to church. Week after week after week. And that is how God has designed primarily that we grow. Is by those ways, those things that we do, by taking advantage of those means of grace that He's given us. Doing that week after week is God's primary plan for growing and maturing us. Well, that, there isn't always excitement there. There isn't always the camp high in that experience. It's pretty much day in and day out. One day, much like the next day. And so it's easy for us to grow slothful in our zeal. It's easy for us to stop being fervent in our spirit. To start feeling humdrum. And I remember when I had been a Christian for about 11 months, someone asked me, you know, what the Lord was doing in my life or something. And, and I remember just being struck by the fact that, well, I keep going to church and I keep doing these things. And yeah, I share the gospel and do these other things. But I kind of feel like I'm, like I'm in the doldrums. I kind of feel like the Christian life can be humdrum. And here I thought I was this, you know, I had experienced a lot of the Christian life in those 11 months to be able to make that statement. But the fact is that our Christian life isn't always exciting. It's not always something massive happening. It's not always us getting to do something massive. It's, it's God quietly and gently working in our lives, conforming us to the image of His Son. Sometimes through hardship or the preaching of God's Word or another kind of ministry, 
God works and shapes and mold us, molds us usually in ways that are imperceptible. And so it can be easy for us to lose our fervency in that context. And Paul is reminding us, keep your focus on Christ. Be fervent in spirit. This is how God is working. You can't see it. You don't see the excitement. You don't feel the excitement all the time. But this is God working. Keep your eye on that ball. Keep reminding yourself of what is happening behind the scenes, what God is doing, and serve Him with zeal. Yeah, so it didn't turn into, uh, you know, the, the huge explosion of success that, that you thought it would. It didn't happen in leaps and bounds. You didn't accomplish great things. That's okay. God tends to work slowly and gradually. Let's keep our spirits fervent as we serve Him and let's serve the Lord. We who were rebels and outcasts, we now have the privilege of getting to serve the Lord. If you think about that imagery, we were rebels. We were, we were off in the distance. If the capital is here, we were off in the boonies trying to find a place in the hills to hide from the king because we were in rebellion against him. We knew that we would be in trouble if we ever got caught. We were at odds with him. And in Christ, we've been brought near. In Christ, we've been brought into the very throne room of the one we used to be in rebellion against. That we felt like if, if he ever caught us, Justice would be swift and final. And now in Christ we have peace with Him. We get to serve Him. We, we no longer run from Him. We get to serve Him in Christ. And so Paul reminds us to serve the Lord. Well, how do we do that? There are all kinds of ways we can serve the Lord. We can, we can serve the Lord by giving financially, by, by ministering to a person in need. We can, we can share the gospel with someone. We can go on a missions trip. We can, we can serve the Lord in all kinds of ways, many, many kinds of ways. But I think the ones he's focusing on here have to do with our treatment of one another. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As we serve one another, we're actually serving the Lord. As we sacrifice for one another, we are sacrificing for the Lord. As we pray with one another and for one another, we are serving the Lord. As we give, as we help, even as we correct at times when that's needed, we support, we build up, we strengthen, we provide for, we're serving the Lord. So let's be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord with zeal and not with slothfulness, not not getting tired of all this humdrum Christian life like I had experienced when I was, you know, less than a year old in the Lord. Not, not getting tired of the fact that you've been coming to this church for 50 years. <laughs> you've heard a lot of sermons from up here. Stay fervent in spirit. This is how God is working in your life. And serve the Lord in that way. Let's not, let's not become slothful in that way. Let's not become weary. Though we don't often see huge results. We don't often see massive things happening. Yet God is at work in small ways. And rejoice in hope. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What kind of hope does that give you? If you are in Christ, there is no remaining condemnation for you. What kind of peace does that give you? What kind of peace in your life does that give you? What kind of, what kind of hope, regardless of the circumstances piled against you? What, what kind of hope, despite the fact that you still see darkness and evil in your own heart, what kind of hope does it give you to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That we have eternal peace with God. We have it now. And we will have it forever. Because of what Christ has done. Rejoice in hope. And be patient in tribulation. Knowing that. Being aware of what our hope is. How can we be patient in tribulation? Well, this circumstance is temporary. This circumstance is not the end. 
It doesn't matter how hard this circumstance is. It doesn't matter how bad the tribulation is. It is not the end for me. Even if the tribulation results in my death, it's not the end for me. Because I'm in Christ. And so I can be patient in tribulation. I don't have to do everything in my power to squirm out from under the tribulation. I don't have to, to, to scheme all I can to make this thing go away so that I won't be feeling this pressure, this, this tribulation. I can be patient in it. I can endure it. And finally, I can do that because of being constant in prayer, because of the fact that I need Christ even now. Not just for salvation, not just to die for me, not just to give me His, his righteousness credited to my account, though those are certainly the case. I need Him now. And so I turn to Him in prayer. And I pray when I'm struggling with a circumstance, when I'm struggling with a person, when I'm, when I'm struggling with an evil influence or, or I'm struggling on behalf of another person, I go to God in prayer. I have access to Him, so I go to Him. He's the one who can do something. So often, so often what we really struggle with is the heart of another person. This person we've been praying for to be saved. Or maybe this person who's, who's got some hostility against me or something. Well, the thing I'm praying for is a change in that person's heart, but I can't do it. So I go to God in prayer. He can do that. He can work even in the heart of another person. And so we are to remain constant in prayer. And the more we realize our own situation, the more we look at this world and see what's going on in the world, the more that spurs us to remain constant in prayer, seeking God, laying our needs before Him, laying our desires before Him, and seeing in the process God work and me be changed. So be constant in prayer. So we've got attitudes toward one another. We've got attitudes towards God. And then uh, thirdly, we're to be like family. Like family. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints, verse 13, and seek to show hospitality. Because you take care of your family. You, you seek to meet their needs. You don't just leave them hanging. You take care of one another. Well, in, in Paul's day, you know, th this is true in our day, that we take care of our family and we are to take care of one another as Christians. But if you think about what was going on historically during Paul's day, the church was very poor. And often, uh, turning to Christ would result in you losing employment or some aspect of your employment, particularly if you were employed in you know, making idols or something like that. Well, you're not going to go to work the next day and continue making idols for other people to worship or, or if you worked in some kind of context like that. So there was a lot of poverty. The gospel was shared with the poor, and a lot of people became Christians and became poor. And so it became incumbent upon Christians to contribute to the needs of the saints, to take care of one another. It's because we have a family obligation to one another. If, if you've got, you know, when you're raising children or you've got people near you and, and, and something uh, tragic and sudden happens where they find themselves in financial need, you help as best you can. And that's how we are to be with one another. We are to contribute to the needs of the saints. And of course, uh, I'm very aware that we're standing here, or I'm standing here at Parkside Bible Fellowship where there are generous saints at Parkside that the needs of the saints are being met in many, many ways. That uh, the benevolence giving, the regular giving, that God has worked in your heart to, uh, to produce a great generosity that's just amazing and is, a, is a, a blessing to share with those who are in need. And so, uh, praise God for that. Praise God for His work in your own lives. But He says, secondly, not, not only to contribute to the needs of the saints, but also to seek to show hospitality. And notice that it didn't say, be willing in a pinch, if you have to, to show hospitality. He says, actually, to seek it. To seek out opportunity to show hospitality. And Paul's writing in a day when they didn't really have Motel 6, okay? And Christians would be traveling, and when they would show up in town, where are they going to stay? Well, you know, they could, they could sleep outside, which is what happened a lot. Or if they were Christians, they could find a local church, and they could say, we're traveling through town. Can you put us up for the night? Hospitality was an important way of taking someone who is a stranger and bringing them into your family. 
But now they're no longer strangers. Now you're eating together. Now you're caring for them. Now you're putting them up in your spare bedroom. You're, you're, you're putting them on the couch. You're, you're giving up your own bed for them. You're ministering to them in those ways. This is a Things are different in our in our day and age, right? We don't usually have to put people up in our house because there's no Motel 6. There is a Motel 6. There are other places and there are other options. But he says, seek out showing hospitality. Seek out opportunities to do so. And I think this is a uh, an area where we often forget that our home is a tool for ministry. Our home, like we, we, I think we can tend to think of it as our castle. It's where we retreat, right, from the world. It's where we retreat from other people. And, and we kind of, you know, live in our house with the world at bay and, and other people at bay. And we just want to be us in here, right? The encouragement here is seek to show hospitality. Look for opportunities to bring people in to your world, into your house, to have them eat with you, to have them in your home to care for them. We need to be willing to use our homes as a place of ministry, not a place of retreat primarily. Very often, I know when we moved uh, back from Russia, uh, or as we were living in Russia, we, we had lived with a lot of different people. We had stayed short periods of time and longer periods of time with a lot of people. And our family was looking for a place to retreat and get away and keep people at bay, right? And that's a natural tendency, and there are times certainly for that we need to be willing to use our homes to minister. That's a, that's a challenge to me, and I think it's a challenge to all of us. So there are certain Christian attitudes that he talks about, but then we want to land on these Christian actions in verses 14 through 16. First of all, responding to opposition. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, just as an aside, this passage is very hard to outline. As... As, a, as I'm working through trying to create an outline, a way for you to follow my message from point A to point B, uh, I, I try to categorize things and understand the natural logic that's in the passage so that I can communicate what's being communicated in the passage. But the scholars struggle with this passage because it's just a bunch of commands. It's, it's, it's uh, difficult to identify what is the logic connecting them. And a lot of people say, well, it seems like this first section, 9 through 16, is, is primarily about Christians' relationship with one another, except for verse 14. And that throws them off, and they end up abandoning that outline, and they move on to trying to find a different outline, many of which decide there is no way to outline this, that it's just a bunch of commands piled together. It's because of what is said in, in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Because they say, clearly that's talking about persecution that comes from the outside. Non-Christians persecuting Christians. And clearly that happened. And Paul himself is going to die as a martyr. He's going to die being persecuted. So this is very much a reality. It was a reality in that day and it's a reality in our day. But persecution from non-Christians, mistreatment from non-Christians is not the only thing. Not the only way persecution can happen. Not the only way mistreatment of Christians can happen. I'll prove it to you. What, uh, if you were to think about your own relationships, identify the hardest relationships in your life and think to yourself, don't tell us, but think to yourself, how many of those are with Christians? How about, think about the, the most painful times that you've experienced relationally with people. And how many of those have been with other Christians? My guess is that most of us would say many. Maybe even most of the most difficult circumstances we find ourselves in as Christians comes from, is sourced from other Christians to us. It's not a persecution like we're being put to death. It's not a persecution like we're being run out of town or anything like that. But the, the greatest hardship and difficulty and pain in relationship, usually, in my observation, comes from other Christians. 
sharp disagreement, sharp mistreatment of one another from people that you would expect something different from, and yet we mistreat one another. Well, the reason I think that's the case and not out of bounds with what's going on here in Romans is if you just briefly remember the history of the Roman church. When the gospel was shared on, at, at Pentecost, there were Jews there from Rome who became Christians. Went back to Rome, planted a church. That's a natural thing for Christians to do, to share the gospel. Planted a church, and initially the church would have been primarily Jewish. Well, in AD 49, Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So now this church that had been primarily Jewish with some Gentiles connected to it becomes nearly entirely Gentile because the Jews have all been kicked out of the city. Well, some years later, they come back. These Jewish Christians come back to the church in Rome that had formerly been a primarily Jewish church, and now it's primarily a Gentile church, and everything's changed. And so now they, who are the ones who planted the church, are on the outside. And so you've got these struggles well, I'm not just imagining this from making up history. If you think about comments that are made from within the book of Romans, early on, what does Paul do? Well, he, he nails the, the, uh, the Gentiles in chapters, uh, in chapters 1 leading into chapter 2. He's talking about the sins of the Gentiles, and they're awful, and the Jews are like, yeah. Well, then in chapter 2, he turns to the sins of the Jews and says, yeah, you're not above it either. You're, you're sinful as well. Your sin just looks different. But you were also rebellious against God. And so there's a rebuke there, an implicit rebuke to, to the Jews. Well, then that conversation continues on. And by chapter 9 and, and chapter 10, when Paul has talked about how the gospel is, has moved in such a way where now the majority of people coming to Christ are Gentiles and not Jews, well, what does he do? Well, of course, the Gentiles in that context might be tempted to think, well, I mean, you know, God kind of moved on. And they would tend to, to be prideful. And Paul says to them, no, no, don't, don't be arrogant, Gentiles. Don't be arrogant against the Jews. So what, what Paul is doing is he's been, he's been cautioning them. He's been rebuking them about their mistreatment of one another from within the church of Rome. Christians mis mistreat each other. It's something that we do. We have different uh, opinions. We have different positions. And he says... In that context, we are to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Their persecution doesn't look like they're trying to kill you or they're trying to get you arrested or things like that usually. But it's a mistreatment from another person. And how are we to treat them? Bless them. Bless and do not curse. Pray for God's best for them. Ask the Lord to pour out His blessing on them without measure. Bless them and resist the urge to seek vengeance. If your persecutors are non-Christians, then praying for them, praying God's best for them, is going to include the gospel coming to them and them becoming Christians. That's what you'll be praying for them. But even if the person standing against you, opposing you, is a Christian, pray for them. Pray for God to work in their hearts. And so, we are to bless those who persecute us. We are to respond in blessing to opposition Secondly, we are to share in others' experiences. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You enter right into their experience. When they are, when they are weeping, you go weep with them. You go sorrow with them. You become a shoulder for them to cry on. You enter right into what they're experiencing. That's your sibling going through that hard thing. You enter in. And when they're rejoicing, when everything is going great with them, likewise, you enter into that as well. And so we enter into the experiences of one another. And then finally, he concludes with harmony and humility. Verse 16, do not be haughty. Excuse me. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony. Be of the same mind, literally. That doesn't mean you all have to think the same thoughts. You have to share the same opinions, uh, like some kind of groupthink. This is what, you know, this is the party line. You've got to toe the party line. That's not what that means. What that means is having, having the same Lord and the same focus on the same Lord. It means valuing the same things, valuing God Himself, valuing Christ, 
valuing the gospel the way we are brought into peace with God, that we value those things, that we value God's word. We value together, we share that value in what God values. We may disagree on points here and there. We don't have to think exactly the same thoughts. But we are to live at peace. We are to live in harmony. We are to be of the same mind with one another. Not, not haughty, but associating with the lowly. Being willing to, to go to that person who, who lives in a very different circumstance than you do. Being willing to interact with people of different social status and education levels and financial position and backgrounds and all kinds of stuff that we have been made siblings together. And so let's treat each other like siblings. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be the one who thinks, well, uh, I say this is right, and so it's right. And my opinion is what matters, and that opinion is going to carry the day. And you're wrong if you disagree with me, and there's no place for discussion between you and me if we disagree. Don't, don't be wise in your own, in your own sight. Don't, don't imagine that you've, that, that, that you've got the sum total of what is the right thinking on this topic. That, that your word is the final word. It's easy for us to enter into that in different ways that we, we imagine that we are um, an, an authority in some way. We imagine that, that we have the truth to give, and if you disagree with me, clearly you're wrong. Each of us needs to be submitted to God's Word. Each of us needs to be placed under God's Word, willing to be corrected by God's Word, willing to be corrected by God's people bringing God's word to us. So let's not be wise in our own eyes. So how do we conclude? We need to remember where we came from. It would be easy for us if if we were focused on the, the fact that there are so many commands given in this section. I mean, we talked about theology for months and years, and now we finally get to the commands and pow, 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 pow. It would be easy for us to begin to focus on, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, okay, and, that, and that's what we go away with. We have to remember where we came from. Why, do we, why are these commands given to us? It's because of the fact that we are the redeemed people of God. We all alike who are in Christ have been redeemed from rebellion, redeemed from being on the outside in the domain of darkness, And in Christ, we've been brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We've been made His children. And His children behave in a certain way. His children take on certain aspects in common, certain mannerisms and behaviors. And this is what they look like. So these commands are given to us not so that we can become children of God, not even so we can become good children of God. God is pleased with His children And he wants them to behave this way. This is what God is like. This is how God treats us. That that God himself relates in purity and in goodness and in generosity and in grace with his children. This is how we are to relate to one another. And so... As we read through this, we need to keep in mind where we came from. Why is it that when the jazz music is playing, we have a certain expression on our face and not another expression? We have our own background as sinners who have been saved and redeemed in Christ. And so these aspects ought to characterize our relationships with one another, relationships within the redeemed community of a love for one another, that is willing to do good for the other, even at expense to me, even perhaps at great expense to me, willing to do good for the beloved. So God is gracious in telling us how he wants to behave, how he wants us to live in light of the fact that we are redeemed, how he wants us to live in light of the fact that all of our sin has already been done away with, that all of the wrath that we had accumulated has already been spent on Christ. There is none remaining for the Christian. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
And if God is not going to condemn you, Christian, I won't condemn you either. And you shouldn't condemn me. We should treat one another with that kind of love, that kind of grace, that kind of respect, that kind of treatment as siblings, as others who have been redeemed in Christ. And so even in this situation, when we think about how we relate to one another as Christians, the gospel governs our thinking. Remember back in 12, 1 and 2, we talked about having our minds renewed, being being transformed by the renewal of our minds as we think about the gospel, where we came from, what God has redeemed us from, and what He's redeemed us for. It transforms even the way we think about each other. So we can be patient. We can be gracious. We can be giving, sacrificial, taking care of one another. And really what we're doing, as we're expressing that kind of love toward one another, that kind of service towards one another, what we're really ultimately doing is serving the Lord Himself. And that's what we want to do. That's what Christians want to do and what we've been redeemed to do. So as we wrap all of this up, as we wrap up this uh, part here that I believe is talking about how Christians are governed by a genuine love for one another, we need God's help, don't we? I need God's help to be able to do this. I find myself uh, sometimes unwilling to love. Or maybe I'm willing to say the things that sound like love or do the things that appear to be love, but sometimes I'm just unwilling. And so uh, I need to ask God's help. I need to be fervent in prayer together with you, be constant in prayer, asking God to work in us that we could demonstrate to one another the very love that God has demonstrated to us already in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we do indeed need your ongoing work to empower us to relate to one another in this way. Father, we, we rejoice in the fact that, that we have been redeemed, that we were those who needed redemption. Those who were on the outside, those who were at enmity with you. And in Christ, we have been made your very own children. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ. So we celebrate that fact and we rejoice in that. And we, we want to treat each other that way. We want to behave as the body of Christ toward one another the way you would have us, the way you behave towards us. But we need your help. We are still a fallen people. We still have our own sin that we wrestle with. And so we ask, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would strengthen us to love one another with a genuine love, really expressing your love for our brothers and sisters in Christ through us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your Spirit who works in us. Thank you for the fact that though I will fail at this today and tomorrow, that Jesus doesn't fail. Father, we rejoice in this salvation that we have in Christ and we rejoice that we get to celebrate and enjoy and live this salvation together as the body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us and then once I'm done, there's going to be a family who will come up to pray with you if you want to pray with them. And as we close, these words from 1 Thessalonians. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. God bless you all, church, and you are dismissed.